My name is Kim Fortune, standing in for COVID Calls host Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a cultural anthropologist who studies disaster and environmental health vulnerability. My co-host is Mike Fortune, a historian and anthropologist of the life sciences. We're both calling in from the Department of Anthropology, University of California, Irvine, on the native lands of the Tongva and the Akjakamen. Today, we'll discuss a new research data resource, the Pandemic Vulnerability Index, built by researchers at the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, North Carolina State University, and Texas A&M University. Just a few reminders before we begin. You can catch COVID calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Call podcasts from the full archive over almost every day for over a year on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbeam. And you can follow COVID Calls at Twitter at US of Disaster or COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, July 28th, 2021, there are, according to the John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, uh, a confirmed 4,182,405 deaths globally, over 600,000 in the U.S., uh, and over uh, 13,590 in North Carolina, where our guests call in from today. One goal of COVID calls is to give humanity to numbers like these, recollecting both the sufferings and harms, but the many creative ways the researchers and practitioners in many different situations have tried to respond. And this is what we'll hear about today, a really impressive effort to build our capacity to characterize and thus address the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guests today are Dr. Allison Motzinger-Reif and Dr. Reif, both environmental health scientists, uh, Allison is chief and a principal investigator in the biostatistics and computational biology branch at the U.S. National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. Her research focuses on the development and application of modern statistical approaches for understanding the etiology of, complex, of common complex diseases. David is a professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University where his research focuses on complex interactions between human health and the environment using bioinformatics and statistical methods, visual analytics, experimental design, and software for the integrated analysis of high-dimensional multi-scale data from diverse sources. And we'll hear about how their research background uh, brought them into a position of leadership in the pandemic vulnerability index that we'll talk about. But before we go there, I'd like to start by just asking Allison and David to tell us where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 pandemic looks like there at this point. Yeah, so we're calling in from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, we're at North Carolina State University's um, campus um, in, in David's office building here. Um, and unfortunately, sort of numbers are rising here um, like they are um, everywhere else. We're, we're not at sort of the most um, risk. Luckily, sort of case numbers seem to be rising, but hospitalization and, and deaths um, don't seem to be moving too far. Mm -hmm. Too high, at least for our county. Yeah, there's <laughs> right a lot now. of capacity, mm -hmm. I think, here. Yeah. Um, Allison, you're the chief of the biostatistics and computational biology branch at NIEHS. 
Can you say a little about the mission and work of NIHS and how it differs from some of the other federal science agencies that have been more visibly at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, so uh, at least speak to sort of the subpart of, of the mission of NIEHS that I'm um, involved in. So um, National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences is one of the National Institutes of Health. And I actually sit in the Division of Intramural Research um, is, is where I am and where my branch is. Um, and it really is, is the goal of intramural research to do high risk, high reward research. Um, so in, in terms of sort of contributing to the COVID-19 efforts, um, that has been on, on sort of more of the discovery side, the, the active research side that hopefully will translate to public policy. Um, but we are, are different in our sort of pure research mission um, than somebody like the CDC that, that really is sort of taking action and, and sort of implementing public health decisions. We, we are hoping to contribute to the scientific knowledge in the space then could help others. I think this is an important part of this, this story that's not always understood both in the U.S., but also thinking across national lines, you know, revolving around the questions like, where is science done in a society? Is it done within government agencies, within academia, within the pharmaceutical industry, and what makes a difference in where it's done and the kind of science that gets done and so one of the questions we'll have from you going forward is, why was it the role of NIHS to get involved in the, uh, the vulnerability index? But the laying the ground by reminding us that it's a basic research outfit uh, that you're um, speaking from. And how, I mean, besides before getting involved in building the pandemic, what, what was NIHS charged to do or was it left to individual labs to figure out what they could contribute? How was the response to the pandemic organized? Yeah, and I, I can't speak to all of sort of the organization, um, but certainly from the Division of Intramural Research, it's very PI driven. Mm-hmm. Um, there certainly are strong collaborations and branches and laboratories that, that have themes, but it is a PI driven um, sort of in, in your own that I'm a part of. Yeah, and in your own lab, did you pivot to any kind of COVID focus over the last year or so? Also, this, certainly this um, collaboration um, and effort was sort of our our pivot um, yep. to COVID-19 um, with some of the, the modeling aspects. And David, can you say a little about your institutional context? Um, what it I think of North Carolina State is having um, strong... Um, partnerships with both EPA and NIHS in the research triangle, but share with our readers a little sense of like what ecology you are in. Um, yeah. yeah, so so I'm in a, a Department of Biological Sciences, which <clears throat> brings together, I was in the Department of Genetics. Mm-hmm. Um, they merged it with a bunch of other departments. And so Biological Sciences covers from your your smallest the animals that you learned about in high school biology, the, the very early, you know, the low, lowest life forms on the taxonomy, um, all the way up, and then we have a vet school. So one of the things um, about our university is that we really go from like molecules up to, you know, cows and horses and things like that. Um, and that's an interesting place to be. But I'm, I sit in a bioinformatics center, which means that all around me are people from computer science, statistics, um, uh, geneticists from my department and elsewhere, 
Um, we have plant pathology. So we actually have, I sit basically in a data science center. And so when this happened um, and the pandemic came up, you know, the, there weren't hallway conversations anymore, which is weird because everyone was at home. But a lot of the conversation was about it, where are data? Are there things that we can use? What do we do? We're all sort of used to taking different bits of information, putting them together. But that conversation kind of happened again. It was just remote and difficult. And then, you know, the PBI resulted from conversations across across the country, really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I, we definitely want to hear more about that. But before we get into the PBI, can we ask you, David, because you were uh, have been for a long time uh, developing what the the kind of general tool that became uh, ToxPy, and so can you just tell the listeners kind of what that is, where it came from, what it was purposed to do, and then the the new kinds of purposes that it uh, began to 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 acquire. Yeah, and I, it, it's. The difficulty here is that it's such a, it's literally a visualization tool and we're going to be in only audio form for uh, perpetuity. So it's going to be a challenge to kind of describe what the tool is, but I'll trust you to do that. Yeah. So, so I hope that, um, you know, listeners can, um, you know, click on some links that, you know, linked off here off the page um, to look at stuff, but the, the origin of it, before I even describe what it looked like, is that um, I worked in what was a startup company with an EPA um, at the time, which was the National Center for Computational Toxicology. Felt like a startup company. Um, and what they were tasked with doing was, is there some new high throughput way that we can test chemicals in the environment? Because there's very thorough, rigorous testing that goes into every safety regulation. But people have known for a long time, and the technology finally came caught up the idea that we'll never be able to test everything. Mm-hmm. So the center was charged with that. And effectively, we were left with reams and reams of data from these high throughput tests that were all diverse and coming from different systems. And so maybe you're testing chemical A in, um, you know, in, a, in an assay about gene expression for a particular pathway that you think is important. And maybe you're also seeing whether it kills these certain cells. And you're, you know, so each assay is asking a different question of the, of the data of the chemical. And so the the idea of ToxPy was that when we would go up to the EPA folks who live in DC and talk to them about what we were doing, uh, they spend their day thinking about different things than reams of data, right? Like they have different expertise. Um, so I just drew a picture of it, right? And by I drew a picture, I mean, it, this whole team got together and did this. But what we, um, what we came up with was that if you sum all the pieces of information that are about a particular slice of the story, right? Like, Everything that has to do with cardiovascular function, you could put that in a slice. Everything that has to do with endocrine function, you could put that in a slice. And so you get this circle that is called a radar chart. Um, it, it was originally invented. The first publication I've seen of is either 1870 um, by a, a guy named Georg Meyer or Florence Nightingale, mm-hmm. these Nightingale plots, right? So this is a really old visualization. Um, but essentially what you do is you look at, for each entity, you say, the more colored area you have in these slices of information, the more concern you have about it. So if you have a big slice for cardiovascular activity from all the information that went into that slice, you're concerned about cardiotoxicity for that particular chemical. And if you have a big slice for endocrine activity, you're very concerned about the endocrine potential of that compound. So originally we were using it to compare and rank 
thousands of compounds and say, which compound is most concerned, which should we test first, which one is lowest concern? But then the slices give you some idea of, well, it's, it's of concern because this is an endocrine disruptor or a cardiotoxic chemical or immunological or, or whatever else. So that's, that's the origin of, of the tool. Um, and it was really grew out of that, um, that, that center, um, that was, and on the original paper are actually like several of the people who stayed with us to go do the PVI. <laughs> um, you know, so it's been a, a, a long running effort for sure. Can you say a little more about what generated the weighting, the the kind of color scheme, and you know what kind of uh, decision points there were in developing that capability? Yeah, and and so is this for the index itself? For the, mm -hmm. the yeah yeah so so for that one, um, if it's hard to put ourselves in a time machine back to March of twenty twenty, um, a little bit. Because it was a weird time, right? But if 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 you remember, there was, you know, we were wiping down boxes when they showed up, and people were like, "Are my groceries safe?" You know, all these things we didn't know anything, right? So there was a ton of data, and just on just coming online data streams that we could use, and it was really hard to sort of sift through that and say which of these things are actually important. So what we did is we actually part of the team. Um, it, at, at particular Weishui Chu and, and Yvonne Roosan at Texas A&M, um, think a lot about risk assessment and, and how to bring that kind of information together. And so we sifted through the data and said, here's what we can get that is open source, you know, that is free and that we trust. And it really importantly is available across the country. And that way at the beginning was also not true because a rural county in Wyoming had a very different health department budget than suburban DC or, you know, so, mm -hmm. and that's still true, but um, the information was, we had to find information we could find everywhere, to be fair. Um, and then things that we thought had something to do with the index. And a lot of them at the beginning, especially were uh, standing social vulnerabilities, right? So it was, it was not necessarily case rates and infection, but do you have the infrastructure where you live? To, to to have enough healthcare capacity, mm -hmm. are people tending to live kind of on top of each other? Are they moving en masse in and out of a, a congested area every day? Um, and those are kinds of those data weren't unique to COVID. Those are data that people had, but we thought were important for COVID. So as we apportion the data, um, that was the conversation we were having: is before having any history to know what was important, what do we think is important? And then it's now evolved to now we can retrospectively say on day zero, um, how well do we think it predicts um, the, 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 the next caseload, cases and deaths, and retrospectively, does it perform well a month behind, two months behind, three months behind? Now we can have it be more data-driven. But at the beginning, it was really, a, 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 I think, an expert judgment, expert elicitation kind of a thing where we had to think about what would make sense based on what we knew about a brand new problem. Yeah. So you yeah, said no, that you... Can we, go ahead. Can I get, get in there for a second, Kim? So we want to certainly come back to these questions of the data sources and where they're from and uh, and in more detail about the particular data sets. But um, again, just for listeners, when David was talking about um, slices, the best way to visualize it is literally as like a slice of pizza. And if you have 
uh, an entire pizza and divide it into 12 slices. And each one of those represents a, a different form, a, a different data set and a different uh, uh, kind of risk. And they can be smaller or, or larger slices and then sh shading. But I I'll let David go back into that. But the so to go back to March uh, 2020, and, I, and I'm, uh, it's really interesting that it, that it was so early on, but given that one of the tools um, uh, uh, most kind of <laughs> uh, pertinent capacities is to present a kind of systems level view to a uh, uh, diverse set of users and audiences. So, and maybe this is more of a question for Allison then, but maybe both of you. Uh, the question of who those, the initial sort of uh, group of people who came together to start developing it and the different kinds of communities and disciplines that they represented in, I, I would call a, a kind of transdisciplinary uh, kind of community and what it was like to pull that together, how it came together, and uh, what were the kind of process along the way, the, the, the challenges, the pleasures, etc. Yeah. So I'll start. And then, Go for yeah. It. So I, I was going to say the, um, the, so the scientifically, the, uh, there are several nodes connecting all of the authors on previous things. So uh, Allison had, had worked with um, Dr. Rusin and Dr. Wright on several projects independent of me. I had worked with Dr. Rusin and Dr. Wright and Dr. Chu. Allison and I have worked together on several projects. And so the, the nodality of the people was actually already there. We were kind of in conversation. And it just turned out that everybody had just the right set of skills. Like it was... <laughs> It was, it was that, um, you know, we were, uh, the Skylar Marvel, um, who's the lead developer on the project, he's the, the wrote all the software, <laughs> you know, all the code for it. Um, he and I were working on a project that was about GIS data, TaxPy overlaying GIS data. So how do you drop this onto a map? That, and we had published a version with Wei Shui and Yvonne um, at, at Texas A&M. And then as these data started coming online, it was almost hard to think about anything else back in, you know, that, that time of like, well, what do we have? And so we actually started with a global version of it. So we're collecting data from every country. Um, but then we quickly realized that the disparity between what two different countries had was greater than the different counties in the U.S. And we didn't want to add noise to a loud conversation, right? So we thought, all right, let's focus on where we feel like the data are really good and quality going to get better. So we focused on the U.S., um, and then it, Allison does machine learning all the time and her group does. And so Matt Wheeler, who's one of the other co-authors, was working on ways to crunch enormous sets of data through, through sophisticated modeling pipelines. And we thought, yeah, we can actually do predictions. You know, what if we predicted, not just said, here's what your status is today, but based on your status, we're worried that this is where your trajectory is going to go with deaths and cases. And then Fred Wright um, and, and Yue Zhou and Kunqing Song at NC State are my colleagues in the Bioinformatics Center, and they're epidemiologists who are experts at putting together data and, and, and trying to figure out which pieces of data are most important for the modeling. And we started doing that. And then John House at NIEHS started doing that too, doing machine learning to say which variables are actually important. And then Skylar and I were you know, kind of at both ends trying to figure out like, 
how do we code all this? How do we code everyone's wishes? <laughs> um, and, and Yvonne and Weishui with their expert guidance on like what to include and, and sort of how to communicate it to people, right? So it would actually get beyond just the scientists. Um, and then me on the other end of what, you know, some oversight of what can we do and how we can actually make it sustainable because I think it was even back then it was obvious to everybody back in March that it wasn't going to be a one month kind of problem. Like, so we wanted to build something that could actually be modular and grow with time. And I think that's where NIEHS was extremely important with all their web team because there's an infrastructure that's stable and it's hard to underestimate how important that is here. Or it's easy to underestimate how important that is that if you're going to have something with dynamic data, it gets updated daily, right? So it's been updated daily with thousands of data points since last March and it can't break, right? So like, that's really, really difficult um, to do in a thing that I think maybe academic centers are less often equipped, you know, to kind of handle. Yeah. Well, and it strikes me as somewhat different than the data sets that uh, I would imagine you usually deal with, which were, are, would be pretty stable and, and not changing that rapidly. Exactly. Yeah, the, the daily updates is a is a continual challenge because all of the data sources change too. So if people want to really nerd out on data science, right, we have a, um, you know, there's a GitHub with all the data, you can go and model it yourself. But the, uh, the, the this each source changes periodically. And so you're constantly trying to like fix these, I think of them as pipes, you know, you're just connecting data pipes to a thing. And that that is a, that is a, a constant gardener kind of a situation. <laughs> Um, explicate for us a little bit about the diversity of data sources. And you said at the outset that there were, uh, there was lots of data um, about what, and, you know, the social determinants data, you know, was out there kind of ready to go, but what else did you add to the mix? Yeah, I think you know, we started with um, the, the ones that had to be included, which are the infection rate. Mm -hmm. you know, so the, the case data and things like that, and we're connecting up to, you know, is Johns Hopkins data, USA Facts, you know, there's people that were collecting these data and those change daily and they actually retroactively get fixed if they're messed up, right? So, and, and some places would dump a whole bunch of data once a week and once every day, right? So there's, you know, th those data streams, we thought, okay, we have to have those, right? Um, the other big one that was somewhat dynamic was the interventions. So um, some idea of social distancing. So how well are, how much have people changed their behavior? Mm -hmm. That was at the time, at the beginning, that was the only intervention, right? We all sat in our houses and you know, that was it, right? Um, and then testing, you know, how, how rapidly could you roll out testing? And those are the two big dynamic ones that were, have always been tough to wrangle and we tried to capture. Um, and then the other ones were some of the social ones were how mobile your population is. You know, are they moving together in and out of a city every day? Or basically, is it a very rural community where people are spread out? Um, and then residential density, which we know that it spread fast, especially at the beginning. And on the, the dashboard, you can actually go back in time. So you can go back to March if you want and look at the beginning and you see kind of these, uh, you see New York and San Francisco and Seattle and these big population centers light up. And at the beginning, that was a really important driver of, of where this was spreading, was just that population density. And then the other ones are um, were health environmental things. So the demographics of, is your population um, aged? 
Um, are there, uh, we found some, yeah, uh, things that track with race, right? Um, demographics, I think, affect this. And as we know, those things are also connected to many, many other um, yeah. it, social determinants, right? And so the CDC has a social vulnerability index, which is a really sophisticated tool that brings a lot of this together. So we borrowed some of that too um, and and used some of the thinking that they had done to say, here's actually the factors that are that are driving some of these inequities and tried to bring that into because it, as it turns out, it was important for the um, for the pandemic as well. So that whole last set of, you know, you're looking at a picture of it, sort of the purple slices, those those pizza or pie slices at the end, um, all have to do with things that are um, health and environmental. Um, and most of those are, I call static, in that they don't change daily, but they're sort of demographic shifts that change over years. I think one of the more interesting aspects of the, the PVI is the ability to cluster, and I didn't get to try to play around with it, but the idea that you can cluster according to which different counties have this similar shape of the pie. Um, and so can you say more about that? And if you've learned anything from those kinds of clustering, that clustering capacity? Yeah, I think that was, you used that for the applications, right? Yeah, yeah. if you want to describe the clustering, I can tag in on how it's been used. Sure, yeah, yeah, so the, so if I, and I'm sorry for using my fingers, but you know, <laughs> Uh, imagine two pie slices, you know, and radial slices. One has two fingers up and one has five fingers up. So if this is county A and this is county B, um, that looks more like my five finger one, um, clustering is essentially find me everything that looks like my hand, my, my five finger hand and find me everything that looks like my two fingered hand. And that's important because even though they might have similar overall vulnerability, the reasons are different, which is exactly, I think what you're uh, what you're describing there is that clustering is you want to say, why are these counties, um, why are they in need? What do they have? What's driving their vulnerability? Um, and so that clustering aspect is really just takes a, um, you know, a, a clustering like anyone would do with, uh, you know, choosing which Netflix movie you're going to watch next or, or any of these other, you know, uh, applications, um, but asks it about the, the PDF profiles for counties. Um, and that's actually one of the first use cases. Right? Yeah, one of the first use cases is working um, to find peer counties um, and working with sort of uh, interdepartmental health and human services task forces um, in this space. One of the first uses early on was to look at um, sort of cities that, that FEMA had really proactively moved um, to intervene on, places like New Orleans um, mm -hmm. that are vulnerable to disasters in general. And then we're able to sort of evaluate the impact of their intervention in that area um, compared to sister cities or peer cities based on clustering. Um, so work for them to cluster based on the data types that don't change the static measures of vulnerability um, to find cities that were or counties that were, were similar to um, Orleans County um, in those demographics, but had sort of the opposite um, intervention level. Um, so sort of identifying peer counties with the same um, vulnerability look and, and see what what was actually the effect of intervention when everything else was as similar um, as as possible? Um, so that was one example use case. Did you find that it was persuasive to like 
decision makers in Orleans County to be able to say these interventions are working or you could do more of X and it's likely to work? I mean, was that a, could they hear that? Um, Absolutely. Um, They heard it um, for sure. Um, Sort of where we're not within the sort of prediction or or, or controlling Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, But we have um, other example use cases where people have used it to to visualize and communicate. I've I've worked with a a national manufacturing company that has has had to make decisions to open up or shut down manufacturing Mm -hmm. facilities. And they're the same company, but have factories in very different parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've used it to try to communicate why they're making different decisions, right? Yes, we know your peers <laughs> in this other location, in the mm-hmm. other factory um, are open or closed, but but here's sort of why. Right. Here's why these sites are more vulnerable right now. Than the- no, do you work forward. directly with a user like that? Because I mean, it, it's a it's a complex system, and learn to read those patterns takes some patience and, and staying with it. So, do you work directly with uh, a, a a company like that? And how does that? How do they find you? How do you find them? And people have gone come to the website, and we've seen sort of can track usage all over the place. Um, certainly the uh, partnering with the CDC, um, they actually mirror PBI within their, their COVID tracker was, was a group that also were able to, to help think through and we worked with directly of what some use cases of this would be. <laughs> you know, that we've got some different metrics. Um, one example use case identified for this was for mask distribution. Um, at a time where masks were the the key um, intervention and sort of advocacy there. Um, But also sort of our website has our email addresses and say contact here. So I've I've met with people at the companies and we've walked through um, on Zoom or Teams or whatever, but everybody's favorite tool is and we've walked through it to try to help um, talk about possibilities. Does the... Does the index now or does it potentially have pollution as a health stressor in the mix? It, it does. There is. Um, so right now, and, and I should say, um, we recently uh, put up a new, a new model that includes vaccine data hmm. because that has, that's available now at a, in a way that it was not. Well, there was no vaccine, but then <laughs> you know, the data weren't available until really the beginning of 2021. Um, so there's actually two parallel models right now, but they do both include um, a, a part of a slice where air pollution is a contributor um, mm-hmm. to overall. And, and we know that that's important. I think what's hard about that as a, you know, so so it, pollution in this case being uh, PM 2.5 yeah. um, in the air, right? How much particulate matter? Um, I think that at a county level, that's a tough one to build a yeah. lot of conclusions on just because the county, you know, they're so huge, you know, that Western counties look so different than Eastern counties. Um, but the, the framework could definitely adapt if, if we get more resolute data or if, you know, down to the level of if people are wearing personal exposure monitors, there's nothing that says we couldn't incorporate that information and, and average it out. Or if we do it at the census tract level or something lower, um, or a city block level, you know, that's certainly possible. Um, 
but it, for right now, I, I think that the only thing I can think of for the TDI that is pollution based, what I think is that air pollution mm -hmm. is the PM 2.5. So, you know, tomorrow on COVID calls, we're interviewing researchers that are using satellite data to get at neighborhood scale mm -hmm. air pollution burdens. And so this question of like, what kind of, res how resolved do the does the data need to be useful? And then one of my co-hosts is someone that actually is an anthropologist that studies community air monitoring. So yeah. ground level, yeah. you know, those sensors. Um, so we'll come back to that. One thing I just want to put in the mix is that as someone that studied the environmental justice movement for many years, mm -hmm. it's exciting to see the kind of new attention to it that's come in the last year or so and the incredibly important role NIHS will play in figuring out what that where that attention should go. But I think a real important cusp in that movement is moving from problem characterization, knowing you've got a disproportionate burden to saying like, what, what do you do? And so the way that this model gives, gives you a spectrum of choices with, with kind of a, an assessment of efficacy, um, in principle, it's the kind of decision tool that you need to move the EJ movement from problem characterization to moving the dial. So it's really exciting to think at the conceptual level about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. And I, I exactly hope that's how this kind of thing is used because once you, it's connected to a bunch of nerdy statistics and things like that that are useful for, you can send a message like, if your community were able to address this thing by this much, you would benefit this much. Right. You know, right. Those are actionable, actionable things. Is that if, if only this problem were ameliorated a little bit, um, here are some benefits, right? And that's, you don't want to, I'm not saying everyone should be prescriptive based on math models, but certainly that, that helps guide, you know, what yeah. you fix. Because certainly you're right, you don't want to just say, if we just gave them more money, everything would be fine because right. sometimes, <laughs> but that's not, a, you know, it's, it's, it's different reasons in different places. And I think that the pandemic is like really brought that to light is how different, how where you live through this thing means so much about right. how how you're doing and what your daily life is in a way that I don't think of America. I don't like thinking of America that way, but it's yeah, yeah. It's different. What about so? I mean, I at the beginning you articulated the importance of selecting data sets that gave you national scope, um, but you also there's the problem of like county scale air data doesn't tell you much about disproportionate burden. If you if there was like um, fence line data from whatever source, community air monitors or the company, um, would this would the index be able to integrate that? And one, just as a data type, and two, even if it wasn't available everywhere, are you able to take advantage of data that is only available in patches? Yes. So that there there are two basic ways to take advantage of, I'm going to call it missing data. Mm -hmm. um, so if data aren't available anywhere, um, 
you can just do those same modeling anyway and just say that, well, there's, there's missing data and there's more uncertainty. That's one way to do it, which is kind of, is sort of ignoring it. Um, but the, the model doesn't break in a sense. Mm -hmm. um, but right. I think the right thing to do for that would be more of a, a targeted approach um, where you're actually building a model for a region, right? So, so if you if you thought that if you had that fence line or, or local level data for a particular region, um, you might as well just in a sense you know mouse scroll in on, on an area and say let's build a model for this area, and you can always zoom back out and say how does this compare to the if you want to aggregate it back to the county, but that's really what we're working on right now is is um, the the concept is there and the model is there. But now we're actually working on the software tools to be able to say county is fine, but Los Angeles County deserves to be zoomed in on. Yes. And what if we zoomed way in on Los Angeles County and broke it up into neighborhoods and then maybe zoomed back to a state level, you know, and, and that sort of in and out interactive. So the framework can handle it. Um, it's about making the software. That can, that can yeah, let me go down that line a, a little bit further. Um, and I'm, I'm, I may lose battery here, so I apologize if I fade out. But given that one of the things that we know is that there's a strong correlation between like voting patterns and vaccination patterns, are there data sets like that that you've thought about incorporating or, or not or, or data that you would like to kind of at least play around with to see what you, you might get? Yeah, I think I, so. I'm going to suggest that we both answer this separately <laughs> and I'm going to answer it from if as not a federal employee, if I were just writing a blog, um, a really strong mathematical predictor of, especially right now, vaccination rates and, um, and, and infection rates, you know, on the opposite end is unfortunately very political. Um, and so if you, if you were to look at the nationwide PBI map, and look at where all the hot spots are right now. Um, they basically migrated to certain regions of the country um, that, that vote in a similar way. And if you zoom back to the beginning of the pandemic, that wasn't true, right? So I think the key thing is including vaccinations in there. You really see this pattern um, start to come out, and it's a difficult to ignore that pattern. We have not included that in the PBI model. So as to keep it um, things that are uh, that one can objectively measure data wise, not based on a poll. Um, and then you might have a different. <laughs> also, when you're when you're talking about sort of advocating and finding use cases, not mm -hmm. that all the data that's in here is is functional, but there there's strong epidemiology. Um, sort of to, mm -hmm. to what goes in um, those models and, and when you think about what are useful um, predictors and what are your useful thing ways to communicate um, mm -hmm. and sort of empower decision makers than, than putting things based on sort of the, the epidemiological drivers um, underneath this. Mm -hmm. Well, and in, particularly in a context where there's there's so much contestation about what's good science, if the science contribution, and it's an interesting dilemma for social scientists because a lot of our data is considered political from the get-go, mm -hmm. which can justify just excluding it. 
But on the other hand, strategic communications, you have to acknowledge that it is considered political. Mm-hmm. And so in, the, in trying to develop more integrated data approaches that would include political cultural analysis, for example, mm-hmm. it's like it's, there's a bundle of things to kind of attend to. Yeah. It, what our hope is that, you know, so all the data are public, you know, the, all the, yeah. the hard work of scraping the data and putting it together, you know, that was one of the things from the beginning we put out and continue to put out. And I, I think that's why, again, partnering with NIH over it means that there's a stable place where the data live. People can yeah. go there. It's not subject to manipulate. Like there's no company trying to <laughs> make money off it or maybe it is just the data are what they yeah. are. Right. Um, and, and I, well, I, our hope is that if somebody has an interesting hypothesis to something that might be coming out of those data, that they can use this, um, use these data to test that hypothesis, whether yeah. it be a, a very political hot button thing or something obvious that we're all missing. You know, I, I'm hoping that the data get used. Yeah. You know, something this reminds me of is the toxic release inventory when it was set mm-hmm. up back in the 90s is that you know, it's a messy data set because it's corporate provided, but because it's corporate provided, they can't contest what it says. And so the way that an imperfect data set can still be, it's been politically powerful to have the TRI. I mean, just watching environmental perception over the years. And so, um, you know, having a strategic sensibility about how to both get usable data, but also data that has credibility in different kind of spheres, um, I think is interestingly part of the science, not aside from the science. Um, oh, and you know, the other thing that I'm, I'm listening as a teacher of, I think one of the things that your, the system does is points to the need for data advocacy, not just environmental policy advocacy or health policy, but data advocacy. And in this work, have either of you seen um, or come to understand missing data that you would really get behind saying like, look, we've got to collect this so that we can bear, better characterize these vulnerabilities? So there's data that's being collected on mm-hmm. you know, all aspects of that. And so it's a separate issue of we wish, saying we wish it was easy to grab <laughs> for us is different than saying it hasn't, isn't mm-hmm. being. Um, sort of looked at there, but um, sort of we haven't yet found any sort of positivity rate um, kind of information at the county level, um, right? Of sort of we can get information on on testing, but it, it is not readily publicly available that, that we have found yet of what those positivity rates are. And, and that becomes important, especially for things like predictive modeling um, and understanding sort of sampling bias. Um, and, yeah. Are the what does that say about the positivity rates that you see in the Johns Hopkins data? Is that um, I don't know where that comes from, but is it it's data that's not useful or not reliable for your modeling? Or well, it I would say that there are a lot of um, there's a lot of footnotes on that calculation mm-hmm. that they do, and so. I think it's very reliable in the sense that they're being very consistent with how they calculate it and that for a given county that has those data, they've been really careful to care to mm-hmm. do that very well. And I think that uh, if you were to look at the country as a whole, um, your confidence in a positivity rate would differ uh, across the yeah. country. 
Um, and I think that's a challenge. Um, yeah. Those data. But it's also a really important lesson of your vulnerability index of the need for data documentation to make any data usable. Um, and so do you like could a researcher go go into your model and create a kind of restricted space where they could put put in some data that might be controversial to conclude to include or that they don't have full reliability in but are interested in? where they can see its outcomes without kind of public visibility and a, really an experimental approach to the model itself? Yes. Uh, yes, they can do that with, um, they can, they can certainly take the data and if they're, um, you know, if they're a code nerd, they can take the data and enjoy, <laughs> enjoy the, 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 the playground of whatever methods they like to use. If they're particularly, um, want to use the uh, the visualization style that we have here. The PVI dashboard is a self encapsulated entity, um, so you can manipulate the data in it, but you can't add your own data to the dashboard. There's a standalone version of, that's um, called Toxpy GIS. That there's a web app for that where you can go and bring in any data you want at any scale, so it, it can be. And really anywhere, again, county level, census state, census track level, like, so that would be the playground for that right now. Um, what we're currently working on is the, the software sort of toolkit that somebody who, if you're an ArcGIS user, you can plug this in and create your own stuff. And if you are just sort of a consumer or viewer of these kind of maps, you could bring your data in that way too. So it's, we're trying to fill in that gap. So right now there's an imperfect like a, or a, an alpha version of the, you can, you can do your own analysis um, through this sort of framework, but um, that's, hope to get that out you know, as soon as we can. Do you, do you imagine that as generating, you know, some of the mapping tools like the EPA CMAC and things, mm -hmm. I mean, it's generated like a ton of scientific work over the years. Do you, is that one of the promises of this, that it will be the scaffolding for more, uh, finely focused studies by researchers all over. I, I think the integration piece it has a lot to offer for that. For yeah. the, the data integration across scales, it's a um, you know the the math is the math is simple in that it's not um, it's not asking for a, a, a big giant Bayesian backwards calculation that takes a time. It's it's not that the prediction piece. Yeah, that's super hard. <laughs> that, that's actually yeah. like goes. That's a giant. Allison can tell you about the machine there because I don't understand it. But that's a really hard one. Um, but the actual like just the simple, the simplest framework to draw the diagrams is straightforward. And I think the good part about that is that if you if you add in new data and your picture changes, it's obvious to you that it changed. And and I'm, I'm hoping that that convinces people to say, oh, this would be a good framework for asking the kinds of questions that you're uh, mm -hmm. proposing there. And, and, and I think if we, I think if we get the, the, the software right, and again, anyone can have it then and, and they can, you know, do more creative applications. Somebody sent me something the other day where someone had used it to visualize baseball scores, <laughs> baseball player performance. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, they're picking the best baseball players. It's a really cool application. I'd never, I'd never think of that in a million years. So yeah, I'm hoping that the creativity of the world is, always greater than, you know, any particular yeah. teams. Yeah. 
It is. I mean, yeah, the data work that has been done kind of in unlikely places over the years is really impressive to watch. And and to build infrastructure that lays ground for that, I think, is so important. Um, Allison, can you just tell us more about the predictive challenge and technically what that entails and who knows how to do it and how it gets reviewed and eventual <laughs> and that whole mess? So the, the prediction work is, um, the, the modeling itself is done by a brilliant Bayesian statistician um, in, mm-hmm. in my branch at NIAHS, um, Dr. Matt Wheeler, um, that really was able to, to set up a, a it is definitely an, an extreme machine learning um, kind of predictor tool, but but something that takes sort of the the scale of data that we have and can fit within sort of a, a two stage nested model where you're first predicting cases and then predicting deaths from um, cases and sort of there's a unique structure <laughs> and limitation to to this data as sort of missing data was filling in as um, you know sort of the the overall rate of transmissible cases has changed mm-hmm. it's become that data has been very sparse at some at different times in the pandemic in different places and and dealing with that complexity um, has been an interesting challenge. Um, so the, the the Bayesian sort of the predictions on the web tool are off of a, a, a Bayesian machine learner that is geared for prediction and not interpretation. Right? We've we've done some modeling where you know the 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 Pi visualizes the data. Um, the team members that David's mentioned earlier have worked on sort of the epidemiological modeling of um, trying to understand which data types should be in there and, and seem to have strong associations. And then the, the predictions of sort of new cases and deaths at a, at a local level are, are done within a, an extreme machine learning um, framework. So tell us how you're using prediction and interpretation differently, or they clearly mean different things to you. And then also what you mean by extreme machine learning. Um, (laughs) That that is an abuse of of jargon. (laughs) Um, Right. So um, here when I'm saying prediction, I'm, I'm saying we on the dashboard include predictions out. Um, into the future of sort of mm-hmm. the midterm, um, what are you expecting in, in terms of number of cases and mm-hmm. uh, number of deaths? Um, and sort of the, the machine learning model um, uses sort of high dimensional data to, to try to make those predictions out mm-hmm. in the future. Um, I'm saying it's an, a, I'm abusing jargon to say it's an extreme machine learner, but machine learning means lots of things to lots of people. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to discuss um, all of that, but I was uh, being flippant in my head of there, there's some methods that work to be white box tools, you know, things like decision trees that, that try to both do predict do prediction, but also reveal a little bit under the hood, um, where there are other suites of machine learners that I'm, I'm saying are extreme, I guess, only because they're, they're black box models, mm-hmm. um, right? These are, these are algorithms tuned for prediction, um, and it's not necessarily something you can sort of pull out. You don't get nice regression coefficients that give you the mm-hmm. effect size, right? It, it's able to model nonlinear and very complex structures um, mm-hmm. with sort of parameter op- optimization to do prediction, um, knowing that it, it it's not necessarily a white box model that'll help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
how understand to what extent do you need to understand the biology in order to do the computation well for the prediction yeah um, especially at that stage but i mean it's been a long running question in bioinformatics i know <laughs> it's like you're at it and especially you know thinking about educating a new generation that somehow is working at these cross points um who who's at, at the table when you're actually um, extreming the mo the model in that way and kind of making sure things are um, kind of on point. Yeah, um, so we definitely have tried to follow sort of general best practices of you know thinking through in collaborative groups. Here is an analysis plan. Here is a model and how we're um, setting it up. That have had the sort of whiteboard discussions that haven't been on an actual whiteboard, <laughs> but by Zoom, right? Yeah. Where we've got multiple people that are experts in forecasting and modeling and um, statistics and biostatistics and have sort of debated advantages and disadvantages to different um, modeling tools within that context um, to play around with sort of variable selection um, or sort of different approaches that just allow for sort of correction of these mm -hmm. multiple um, risk factors within there um, and to have sort of peer-reviewed discussions of what modeling options there are and then sort of internally and externally peer-reviewed discussions of right. the outcomes um, there. So collaborative. And then we also make sure in these complex models that sort of the code has been re-implemented and checked yeah. um, as well. Um, so to have a team of people that that not only implement it once, but <laughs> sort of confirm and make sure there's there's rigor and yeah software. Yeah, for this particular problem, the, the sort of uh, the, there's a sniff test that you can kind of do on a um, a prediction result where at a certain point in time, you know, you if you just let the machine learning go, it'll say things like all of New York City is gone, or Phoenix, Arizona has more deaths than they have, and you know so. So there's like those obvious things to catch. Mm -hmm. I think actually sort of looking for those to pop up helps you helps you decide whether your assumptions and things are reasonable in your bounds. And, and that's been besides the discussions and the, right. the, the panel part of it, um, you, know, you can kind of be, be tamping down those kind of problems as they pop up. Because again, in a daily model, um, yeah, that is it, every day, every day we're looking at this and being like, wait a minute, something is, you know, something's off or a county doesn't deliver their data as right. we expected. And so you know, kind of smooth it over time. Um, you know, they're, they're the, the dynamic part is probably the hardest part of the, the yeah. most technically challenging part of this. I think. Yeah. You know, the, the discussion during the pandemic about whether conventional peer review is kind of too slow to keep up with the pandemic and the science mm -hmm. has been especially interesting from a history of science perspective, because on one hand, it is new, but the way that new forms of peer review and cross-checking have had to be invented as, you know, like this standard journal review may not be enough to do the cross-checking that you're talking about here. And so how do you invent the forms of oversight that you know you need, although it's supposed to be external? So this story of like how you built robustness, like what we would call a social infrastructure, like... Okay. Whose eyes do you put on it? When um, and how do you credential it? Partly by inventing that social infrastructure to go around the kind of bench infrastructure. Mm -hmm. 
we don't have a lot more time, so I want to turn quickly to the curricular development that you're supporting at NIEHS um, as a window into what you've learned from this about the kind of data, well, let's say integrated data education that we need to support um, going forward in order to have the research capacity that kind of you're building for us. But tell us a little about um, just why you did the curriculum element. I know it's part of NIH's mission, but why this? Um, and, and also just the bigger picture, like you want to be knocking on our doors at the university saying, you know, y'all need to do X. <laughs> yeah, so definitely the, the motivation for the curriculum, right? If this is part of our effort to to educate some people at, at all levels. Um, so the curriculum was targeted towards high school mm -hmm. uh, students and sort of vetted with Wake County um, public schools um, here and, and some school teachers. Of, you know, I, I think the, the pandemic has highlighted even more than in normal times, the need to for fluency um, in sort of trying to understand um, data. Um, certainly this was, um, relevant um, immediately, right? Talking about COVID has been you know, scientific talks that need no introduction for the first time ever. Yeah. Right? We know where we're all sitting um, yeah. in this. So um, an important timely um, topic in a time that we're trying to communicate science right. <laughs> around it as, as well. And um, sort of this is a, an example of data and data science that is sort of out there reproducible um, and and at some level hopefully easy to understand some of the the main interpretations mm -hmm. um, right so the, the math itself is actually not all that high level you, you don't need calculus to calculate this so it's it's an approachable metric and summary um, and sort of walking through <laughs> with students how how do you merge big data how can you think about yeah. sort of rolling things up and, and doing it in a way that, that matters. Yeah. No, I, I love the curriculum, the assignments a lot. Something um, that we can close with is in trying to, to in, like when I teach environmental health governance courses, I have students learn to find and use things like EPA's EJ data, that kind of thing. And it's, it's surprising how much of the data isn't very stable. You know, like the government accounting office will report, produce this beautiful report about Superfund sites and flooding. And the next time I go to teach, the map doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about if and how and why housing your system at NIHS might give it a little more durability where it not only can be used by scientists, but integrated into educational programs in a sustained way? I mean, I, like I said, some of the, the Institute's mission where, where I sit in DIR is, like I said, innovative research that extramural people need to go get funding to sort mm -hmm. of, you know, get the infrastructure right. Something has to something gets started as sort of a pilot or preliminary yeah. data, not that it's not vetted. Mm -hmm. um, right? but if you normally have to build resources to support mm -hmm. that kind of right. long-term with unsteady funding, um, which for being a um, 
within sort of NIH is a, a unique opportunity to sort of proactively plan what you'll need to be stable um, and, and let sort of science and the mission drive that. Um, yeah. It's just a different model of, of sort of resourcing yeah. um, research that um, has advantages and disadvantages, but some real key advantages. To yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be... It's also it's actually an important element to teach in teaching the model because it the question of like what does it take to get the science done? That's what we need all of our students to understand, even if they're not going to become scientists themselves. Um, so that's a interesting part of the story. I think Mike is um, out. We need to close, but do either of you have any um, further comments that you want to make about? Um, your vision for the model or um, what you what you hope people understand about the effort? Um, yeah, I, I wanted to say thank you for doing programs like this because I think that part of that outreach and education piece is that everyone's going to understand this in a different way mm -hmm. and not just the data, but not just the, you know, with this particular tool, some people are drawn to the visualization because they're colorful and they kind of pop out and they're some people say, oh, I get that right away. Like my eight-year-old son, when he was seven, was explaining to me the, the model like very cogently. Mm -hmm. And other people glom onto a totally different piece of it, mm -hmm. the vividness, right? And so I, I feel like especially COVID is really useful because we're all living it and experiencing it in a way that is different than other things that you have to be an, that you know about. And I, I think that if you hear about it, if you talk about it, if you look at it, if you see the data, whatever your route in, I think, actually helps with that level of understanding in a different way um, than we're used to for, for any other scientific problem I can think of. That's a, that's a great articulation because it does suggest why you need diversity at the table, disciplinary diversity, generational diversity, because in a, a research resource like that, it doesn't just say one thing. It says a lot of different things pointing in a lot of different directions. Um, yeah, I think the generational one is probably something that you also see with your students is that yeah. every year the students bring more and more sophistication <laughs> uh, to, to what I had um, yeah. as, as they come in. And, and there are many aspects of diversity that one needs, I think, to, to get a handle on a problem like this. Yeah. Allison, do you have anything to close with? No, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. I thought he, he Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Mike and I will want to follow up with many questions, but thank you first for your work on in your your ongoing work and your work on the index and for talking with us. It's really, uh, we've appreciated it a lot and you've got fans out there. So uh, please keep at it. <laughs>